Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And he, hallelujah, and he indeed turns our sorrow into joy. You may be seated. Jesus spoke the words of our gospel on the night in which he was betrayed. It was Maundy Thursday. Weeks before this, he had already told his disciples that it is necessary that he must suffer and die and on the third day be raised. And the week before this holy week, Jesus tells his disciples, just before Palm Sunday, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And now... In today's gospel of that Maundy Thursday of Holy Week, Jesus seeks to impress upon their minds that the time is at hand. A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, because I am going to the Father. The disciples had heard what Jesus had said, but the disciples did not understand or comprehend his words. On one hand, they knew that he was referring to his his suffering and death and his predicted resurrection. But on the other hand, they did not understand these things. In fact, they were offended. The disciples had it fixed in their minds that their expected Messiah must establish a glorious worldly kingdom and for Jesus to be the ruler of this world of God's people. What was it that was most offensive to the disciples? It was the words of Jesus, repeated seven times in our gospel, a little while. Because the disciples, well, they should expect that Jesus is to remain with them a great while longer. Not too long ago, they escorted Jesus into Jerusalem in the midst of shouts and hosannas of the great crowds. The disciples expected Jesus had come to Jerusalem in order to stay there for a long while. Jesus, to take on the the throne of David in the temple, to sit upon the throne of Solomon in the temple. Jesus, to share in his glory by making each of the disciples the twelve judges of the tribes of Israel just like the good old days. The disciples expected that for quite a long while. They expected to enjoy an era, an era of happiness and prosperity for the whole nation of Israel. 
But now, Jesus was about to leave them for a little while. The disciples were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. But you'll notice that Christ does not make an attempt to explain to them the expression of a little while. Because Jesus knows in their present spiritual state, it would be of no use. So instead, Jesus keeps it rather simple. Jesus simply tells them what the effects will be of his withdrawal and his reappearance. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. That's what was in store for the disciples. Sorrow and joy. Sorrow when their Lord would depart and sink into the grave. And joy, exceeding joy, when they shall once again see him in the crucified body of his glorious resurrection. This effect upon disciples was not only said for those disciples long ago. Until the end of the world comes, Christian disciples must expect both sorrow and joy. Now, as for the Christian's sorrows, well, there are many people that firmly believe that Christians should not be burdened with sorrows. In fact, many of those who are convert to be Christians, those who confess the faith, may expect that God should rule and govern things so that their lives can glide along smoothly with no troubles, no bumps in the road. They would expect from God that he must keep them from every danger, from every evil, from every calamity. And even at times when a smaller calamity comes upon them, well, they'll think that they just need to get over it. They may even think that it's something they've done. So then it must be something that they must live with to pay the penalty for their sins. But then, at a time in, the, in their life, when an even greater evil befalls them, an even greater calamity, and they are victims of some great misfortune, causing great sorrow, great grief, they murmur against God, sometimes even blame God. They'll say, how can a gracious and merciful God do this? How can a loving God send down upon us such misfortunes? And here we are trusting in him. So no, there must not be a father in heaven. There is no divine ruler of the whole universe. Because if there was, there would be no sorrow. The fault 
with such people is that they expect God to give them something of which he never promised to his disciples. Has God ever promised that Christians would not be burdened with sorrows in this world? Now, uh, to be sure, God does promise divine protection. He promises to care for you, to provide for you. He even promises that his own holy angels shall watch over you. And God promises not to tempt you above and beyond what you are able to handle. But nowhere, nowhere in fact does he promise to withhold all sorrows from you. Jesus says to his disciples that Thursday, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. So the disciples then, and we disciples now, should we expect greater favor from the Lord than the disciples that day? Can you really say that they deserved more punishment than you? Does not Paul say, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? And in Acts, it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You can look at the afflictions and the griefs and the sorrows of the apostles and even the prophets and men like Job. So no, Christians are not exempt from the common ills of mankind. Actually, as a rule, they must even bear more sorrows than the unbelievers. Christians are the cross-bearers. We are to endure the reproach of the world. We must suffer for the very reason we are Christians. And as Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. But even these things are not the greatest sorrows of Christians. Because these are sorrows concerning, well, temporal things, mortal flesh. The greatest sorrow of a Christian is when they are troubled about the welfare of their soul. Christians must come sometimes face to face with the same experiences as did the disciples of Christ during those three days when the Lord was taken and sealed in a tomb. Because we know what it's like to be beholding nothing but a grave. The disciples' sorrow was overflowing. They still clung to Jesus. They loved him. But their hopes had evaporated. Their expectations had dissolved. They had hoped that Jesus was the one who should redeem Israel. There's nothing left to hope for with a, a dead Savior. Eyes that once looked at them lovingly were as still as death. 
Lips that had spoken words of life to them were silenced. They had left everything behind and followed their Lord to a tomb. In the disciples' minds, Jesus was no longer a a lively miracle worker or a healer, but a brutalized corpse. They had comfort in life and death before Thursday, and now it was becoming completely eradicated. The greatest sorrow of Christians is when they are made to feel as if they had no Savior and no hope. When it seems like Jesus is hiding from them, there is no joy for them. They cannot rejoice in their salvation. The greatest sorrow of Christians, then, is when they realize they're not really Christian at all. No faith, no rights to the promises of eternal life, Jesus is dead to them. Jesus can do nothing for them. They will say they don't need Jesus. Now, they may pick up a Bible and read it, but the word does not impress anything upon their soul. They seek relief in prayer even, and God does not seem to hear them. In their hearts, they feel like they are sinking like Job. Job, who says, I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. But the comforting promise given to Christians is, their sorrow will not endure. How long did those disciples mourn the loss of their Lord. It was only a little while. Three days. And to this day, God will not put heavier burdens upon his dear children that they are able to bear. And he will deliver them shortly. All of their troubles and sorrows must come to an end. Suffering and tribulation is only for a little while. It is so that your faith may be tried and true, that you may be made strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Then is your sorrow turned to joy. That brings us to the Christian's joys. The Christian's joys in this world, works in a strikingly similar way. Some people may think that to be a Christian is always sad and gloomy, and to find fault with everything else in this world. It may mean to them that to be a Christian is to find no joy in worldly things. But God says distinctly to Christians, rejoice with those who rejoice. Just as the Apostle Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. We rejoice with others, like the parents of a newborn child. We rejoice at others, 
with people at a wedding. We rejoice with new vicars and new pastors. But yet, man's desire for happiness can never be perfectly fulfilled in this life. There will always be something lacking to make his joy complete. Consider all the wealthy men and women of the world who seem to have it all, and they, can, they seem to be able to get any source of happiness or pleasure they want. But yet, what will they say? They'll say that even in the midst of their pleasures, they find no real lasting enjoyment. For the joys of this life pass away. He who is laughing today might just be crying tomorrow. A Christian, therefore, does not seek fulfilling joy in only the things of this life. For the true joy of a Christian is of a higher order. The Christian's joy, described in the words of Christ, I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. The Christian's greatest joy is the possession of Jesus. The Christian's greatest joy is the abiding of Christ and the enjoyment of Jesus Christ. The Christian, in true joy, can say, I have put on Christ, and he is mine forever. Neither life nor death will ever sever the ties that bind me to my Lord. For death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And yet all the joys of this life that we enjoy, they still pale in comparison to this joy I describe in Jesus the Savior. The person that is truly happy is the Christian who has made sure that their sins are forgiven. True happiness comes by the way of the cross. True happiness comes by the means of forgiveness. Joy, found in word and sacrament, received in faith. The joyful Christian is made sure that God is their dear father and that they are God's own beloved child. True happiness is knowing that heaven is your home. And the Christian, the person who is certain of all these things, is the Christian who believes in Jesus Christ. It is the Christian who joyfully lifts up their head, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of sorrow, even when the rain falls down upon you. It's the Christian who is still able to say to their heavenly Father, you do love me. You love me even now. And I know that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And even though, for many, 
the immediate future may look dark. Joyfully, can a Christian face any type of future in front of them? Joyfully, the Christian knows that that very future will be bright in the end. And that for them, the day will come when Jesus says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Why? Well, that day is a day of eternal joy and glory. A day in which you'll find questions already answered. A day in which you will find all those mysterious dealings of God with you in your life are explained to a perfect satisfaction. The Lord, fill your hearts with this joy which surpasses all human thought and understanding. Amen. At this time, may we all ask our Lord to restore unto us the joy of thy salvation as we sing the offertory. Please stand as you're able.